from Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Connecticut, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Guys, I'm looking out my window. It's a gorgeous day. I think like it's the perfect time to start talking about rosé. Can't wait to get into this. But before we talk about rosé, how are you guys holding up? I'm holding up pretty well. In Connecticut, I got to say there are um, there's a huge amount of wildlife here. We've seen coyotes and deer and turkeys every day. I wake up to something new and exciting. So it's a lot different than being in the city. That's awesome. Zach? Uh, it's, uh, we're not, we're not quite the same amount of wildlife, although there is <laughs> apparently like a large community of herons that have like started nesting in my neighborhood, which is kind of cool. Cause they are very large and majestic birds and sort of weird to be walking. Like I had, I was walking with my dog and my son the other day and like an enormous shadow went overhead and I was, you know, it was like, it was actually kind of frightening, but also very exciting to see. So, so that's my wildlife story for the, uh, for the, for the day. I've got a wildlife story. A bird flew into my apartment. i uh in this room that i'm working in there's no screens on the windows and i was actually like on the phone with josh uh, you know the co-founder of vine pair with me and um i had the window open like just like kind of like an idiot and a bird just flew right on in and he was hanging out he and then he got very and then i think i freaked out so he freaked out or she freaked out i don't want to gender the bird and um (laughs) And so then I'm like, get out of the apartment. And I had to finally like find this Swiffer, you know, and start like trying to shoo the bird out with the Swiffer. It was a really pretty bird too. Like I think people probably are listening to my story being like, oh man, Adam had a pigeon fly in his apartment. But it wasn't a pigeon. It was like a really beautiful red bird. And I was like, maybe this is a robin or a, like, this must be a sign. I don't think it was a sign. It was just a bird that got confused. But um, it made it out very safe. So I guess I have a wildlife story as well. Nice. <laughs> Did you just, like, pour a drink or something? No, I, I I had to get it out fast. It was probably in the apartment for like, you know, three or five minutes. But it was a scary three or five minutes. And I was also like, what if this bird just lives here forever now? Like, what if it, this is its home and I can't get it to leave? Yeah, it has to quarantine with you for 14 days now. I know, oh, seriously. And then in the end, then I was like, oh, we got, now I have bird flu. There we go, bird flu. I have a question for you guys before we talk of Rosé, because uh, the day after this podcast goes out is uh, Cinco de Mayo, and obviously, I, I don't know, I shouldn't say obviously, like, we, we haven't really talked a lot of tequila on this podcast, I don't feel like, um, other than Adam and I did a, a sort of a, a tequila and mezcal podcast a while back, but uh, are, are you guys, like, is that a, a, a are you going to set aside Tuesday for, for drinking some tequila, or other, I guess, uh, you know, uh, agave spirits? I am. So... Now that we've been up here in Connecticut, I I usually don't have the chance to have dinner with my kids, but we have actually been doing Taco Tuesday, and my kids love it. Seriously, (laughs) we actually have been doing it, and so we're going to have our in-laws over, who we're now sort of co-potting with um, in the quarantine, and I'm going to make Tommy's margaritas. We're going to have these uh, lovely cocktails, and hopefully it's going to be sunny, and we can all sit outside and have a, a little bit of a, a fun, festive, socially distanced little um, Cinco de Mayo party ourselves. I plan to also make some sort of uh, Mexican-inspired dishes, not tacos, uh, just because I don't have the ingredients, but I'm going to make like this black bean bake that was in the New York Times recently. It's quite good. And um, then, yeah, making margaritas too. For sure, I'm doing it. There's nothing else to do, Zach. You got to celebrate the little things, like a holiday that actually has no significance whatsoever and that was co opted by the marketing communities, including Corona, in order to sell more Mexican beer. But hey, I'm, I'm here for it. I, I will be drinking 
probably some combination of tequila and mezcal myself. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm no different. Well, let's get into this uh, this rosé list. So Zach, you know, we created the list. Unfortunately, since you're in Seattle, you were you were not a part of the tasting panel. So we're gonna let you play we're gonna let you play host on this one. Um, but you know, we, we release our our top twenty five rosés every year around this time. It's one of our highest. Uh, you know, most read articles of the year um, receives lots of uh, attention from you know various parts of the industry, and um, we were super excited to put this together this year. So let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so first off, I think we have uh, a couple of guests to welcome, or not guests, friends, coworkers, whatever. So Tim McCurdy and Keith Beavers, who are also a big part of putting this list together, from what I understand, gentlemen, how are you doing? Yeah, going great. Thanks, Zach. Um, you know, I guess like like yourselves. Just kind of making do right now. Definitely looking forward to Cinco de Mayo myself as well. Having a bit of tequila, having a bit of mezcal. But yeah, just adapting to the new norm, as it were. Yeah, same here, man. I'm out here in Brick City, Newark, New Jersey. And, Brick City. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how we call it here in Newark. But the, since I forgot about Cinco de Mayo, but I will say that I just happen to have a bottle of tequila that I'll be drinking on Cinco de Mayo, which just happens to be. <laughs> I forgot about Cinco. <laughs> what day is it, Keith? Keith? What day is it? What day is it, Keith? Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's 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 refocus ourselves just a little bit. Uh, so the we'll we'll you can find, <laughs> you can find the list uh, at vinepair.com, of course, and and we'll link to the to the top twenty five list in the description for this podcast as well. But but without going through the entire list, I'm just curious for for each of you, since all of you were involved in putting this list together, what was your favorite wine on the list? And Erica, let's let's start with you. Okay. So I was really excited by the rosés from Southern Italy. And my favorite rosé on the list this year is Planeta's uh, Sicilian rosé. And it's, I think what's appealing to me about the Sicilian and Southern Italian rosés this year uh, were that they really, they're brighter color, they have very vibrant flavors, they have something of a bolder flavor profile than rosés from Provence, for example. So while I love a Provencal style, I was just really entranced by the layers of flavor. So not just fruit, but also savory and mineral. And the Planeta, which came in, I think, at number three, was uh, an, a perfect example of this. So this was had some fruit flavor, some strawberry and guava, and then some hints of savory green olive, like really some complexity there. So with the bolder flavors, the brighter color, I just keep thinking summertime barbecue, anything that you've got on the grill is going to go with this wine. And even better, it's $16, which I'm, I'm super excited. All of my favorite wines this year were under 20. Awesome. Adam, how about you? So there was a bunch of wines that I liked. I will say, obviously, the, the, I was lucky that, I, you know, the number one wine I got to taste. And I think that the, the parasol was pretty amazing. Um, and then there was a bunch of ones that I got to return to that were um, that have made, been on the list before that have continued to be really special, including the Planeta. Um, I, I, I do also think like I was very impressed by the price. I think this year, especially the Parasol, I was really nervous when I tasted it that it was going to be super expensive. Like it just it looks kind of pricey. It is as Provencal. It's very well made for Provencal. And we've seen the, the kind of trend we saw in the last two years was that like the cheaper wines from Provence are or I should say the ones that hover around 20 are getting kind of crappy. Like they're, they're being able to just bank on the Provence name and that's it. And the wines aren't as, as solid as they um, have been in the past. And this one, 
was amazing. And like, look, LeBron likes it too. So like, I'm really into that. Um, what up, Bronny? And, uh, and yeah, that's, that, that, that would be my, my perspective. Keith, how about you? Man, that's tough. Uh, there were so many of them that I loved. Some of them that I've been drinking for a long time, like the, like the, the Chiro, the Calabrian rose. But I got to say, the one that really got me, this is going to be a surprise to everybody, was um, the Adelaida. It is the wildest rose because it drinks like a red wine. It has a depth and structure to it because of its higher alcohol. It has a, 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 a perception of depth to it and full bodiedness that you don't usually get in a rose. And for me, I could totally see like messing around with some duck breast with this wine, like actually having a meal with this wine and pairing it with a meat. It's pretty amazing. I don't think I've ever had a rosé that really has that kind of structure to it. It really freaked me out in a good way. Cool. Tim, how about you? Saving the best till last time, Zach. Um... (laughs) (laughs) That is 100% not what I was doing. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god! I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I, it was warned. So my favorite <laughs> wine from this year, and listening to Erica talk about her wine, it seems like we have sort of very similar kind of um, preferences. So mine was the Gaia 14 to 18H, and I am sorry if I am like um, massacring the pronunciation of that. This is a Greek rosé. It's from Nemea. And, you know, this is a producer that's very renowned Um, they are known for quality, but they're also known for doing some like interesting things. They, they have cool things going on with fermentation vessels and aging. And this wine sort of like leans into that. So the 14 to 18 H name, that is the amount of time hours that the, um, the grape skins spend in contact with a must. And that produces this profile, again, that sort of Erica was talking about, that's sort of very bold, it's very fruity, um, it, it's wonderful with food. Um, I don't know the next time that I'm going to have a barbecue myself, because I live in an apartment in Queens. But if I were having a barbecue, you know, like grilling something, I'm imagining this wine with like grilled octopus, and I think that would just be amazing. But no, this is a food wine, this is fish, this is light charred meat. And yeah, it's everything I'm looking for in a rosé. Awesome. Price is right too, damn. That was definitely a theme kind of throughout a lot of this. I, you know, a lot of, it seems like you guys were really excited about a lot of, um, a lot of wines at, at a really affordable price point, which has obviously been a selling point for the rosé category in general, I think. Uh, but I wanted to say, you know, Adam, I was curious because, you know, one of the things when putting a list like this together is, you know, sort of thinking about the, this sort of balance between what is available and what is, um, you know, and, and kind of how niche a rosé can be before it's like not, it may be great, but it's hard to put on a list like this totally. that, that's going to go to a broader audience. So so let's talk about something like, like what are these wines? How available are they? You know, what, what are some of the wines on here that you think someone listening to this podcast kind of anywhere in the U.S. should be able to get their hands on? So, I mean, I think the, the biggest thing we thought about this year um, was that because everyone is right now quarantining, there has been a large uh, drive to e-commerce. So some wines that maybe in the past we would have thought twice about, we actually did include because they were uh, on on that e-commerce tip, as uh, as Keith likes to say in some of his re- reviews, as long as you're e-commerce savvy, uh, you know, you will, <laughs> you will, you will be able to do it. Um, and so we did include a lot. So all these wines you can find online if you really, you know, want to go grab them. But one of the wines that we were really impressed by um, that's available everywhere is Sea Glass. Um, and that's actually the number five Rosanna list. Pl- Planeta, that's number three, is also in, 
very, very, very well distributed. Uh, but Sea Glass, like I remember when we were looking it up, like you can find it at Costco, you can find it at World Market. Um, so it's really an easy wine to find. And it was super delicious. Um, and I think it's like 11 bucks. So again, like we, we were, it, it helps get it into that top position because not only was it great, but it was so readily available. I mean, that was what we were trying to, to focus on with this list and showcase is that there's a lot of amazing rosé out there that is really easy to find. There's also a lot of rosé out there that's easy to find that's really crap. And a lot of those wines didn't make the list. I and mean, we tasted hundreds of bottles. Um, but, you know, this, this rosé in particular was, um, you know, very, very high quality for money. And then, you know, it being so readily available, like kicked it up, uh, you know, another few notches. Awesome. So Keith, you know, uh, Erica kind of alluded to this when she was talking about the Planeta Rosé, but but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. You know, I feel like the the world of Rosé has has really evolved and and obviously there's still a lot of the Rosés on this list that come from uh, France and, and particularly from the south of France, but but obviously a few wines on here that came from not just from Italy, but but a few specifically from the southern part of Italy, which I think, you know, I don't know that people have typically thought of as a source for great for great rosés. So, so what is it about some of these Sicilian and Calabrian rosés that, uh, that you felt made them, you know, stand out this year? Well, it's interesting. The, the Italians and rosé is not like a, a traditional thing. They do it. I think it all began in Italy, but because of the popularity of rosé, I think rosé became a thing with the exception of Cittasuolo, which is uh, a traditional rosé made from the Montepulciano grape in Abruzzo. Um, but I think that just over the years, as Italians have become more gener- newer generations have come on to become winemakers, you know how it happens in Europe. Usually it's handed down to the children. And as the children uh, came in with new ideas and more open minds, I think rosés became more of a thing. And I think that if a, if a wine can survive since antiquity in Sicily, Campania, Calabria, Apulia, then I think making rosé out of it could, you know, it would, it works. It's just a matter of like whether anybody wanted to make it in the first place. And then it's a matter of like, you know, how good is the winemaker? But because of that, because of these new generations, the rosé, the rosé of Italy has, it's become a thing now. And I think um, if you think about we have some Pinot Noir rosé. We have a lot of Pinot Noir rosé on this list. Um, and if you're in Sicily and you're drinking Norella Mascalese, you know, that's a very Pinot Noir-esque kind of, uh, of red wine. So making it into a rosé kind of makes sense. And as far as the, the wine from Calabria, Gallopo is, an, again, in that same vein of sort of high acid, um, kind of like bright colored, uh, juicy stuff right after maceration. So it's kind of a, I don't know. It kind of works. And it, it honestly, man, like, I don't know why they haven't been doing it. Cause like down there it's hot and there's like a lot, a lot of seafood and it just makes sense. So it's kind of it great. Does, yeah. Thinking, you know? yeah. It's, it's definitely true that you would think that would have been an area where, where Rose would have been already a big part of the culture. Okay. So Keith, you mentioned uh, a variety that now I have to bring up with Tim because uh, antagonizing Tim is apparently one of the themes of this podcast. It's one but- of your themes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you know, when you when you have a rapport with someone, you got to run with it. I mean, it's, it's, it's that or let you give me a hard time, Adam. So I don't know what to say. Uh, so, OK, so, Tim, I, I've never been a huge fan of rosés made from Pinot Noir. That, that doesn't say that there haven't been any that I like. But generally speaking, I find it to be I just I would prefer to drink actual, uh, you know, a, a red wine made from Pinot Noir or sparkling wine and that that rosé just hasn't done it for me. So there are a number of rosés on here made from Pinot Noir. So maybe explain to me kind of what you like about the 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 
broader kind of category of Pinot Noir Rosé and then maybe pick one that that skeptics like me should try and, and maybe give a second chance to? Yeah, sure. I will start by saying that I completely understand what you're saying from a purely theoretical point of view, I guess. You know, like I get the skepticism towards Pinot Noir, Rosé, in its in its red form, it's already quote unquote light and refreshing. I mean, that's not true of every Pinot Noir, right? But it gives that profile. So why do you need to make it into a rosé? And then you kind of have to question like, if it's already light in its red form, is it going to be too light on flavor or anything in its rosé form? Um, so yeah, I understand that from a theoretical aspect. One thing I will say, and I don't think you're asking us to like defend the list, but one thing about the the Pinot Noirs on this year's list, I think they offer something that we're looking for from any wine that's going to make the list, right? So it's got to have good concentration of flavor. It's got to be fun, interesting. It's got to be worth the um, you know value for money. And I think one of the things you get with Pinot Noir, again, as with reds, is you get that refreshing acidity. Um, and especially in some of the warmer regions where we're seeing this, like there, there, there's quite a few bottles in there from California. So whereby if they're vinified into red wines, they might be a bit too weighty and not have the acidity that you'd like from a Pinot Noir and expect. In the rosé form, you start to see that and it, and it continues to be refreshing and just, yeah, delicious. Um, and then, yeah, so you wanted you wanted a an example as well. I think this is this is... From near you, uh, we had the Willa Kenzie Estate Rosé, um, and that's from uh, the Willamette Valley in Oregon. I, I say near you. It's it's all Pacific Northwest to me. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, it's all relative right now. Um, yeah, it's only a few hundred miles away. It's close. Yeah, it's close. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, I just found that to be sort of like nice, round, juicy, around the $20 mark. Um, it's a little bit more expensive than some people will spend on a rosé, but I thought 20 bucks, you know what? I'll take it. That's a good one. Cool. I mean, I would say too, Zach, the, the sea glass, um, we, Keith and I think it's Pinot Noir, uh, because until this year, right, Keith, they had Pinot Noir on the label and now they don't. So we're, we're not sure if it is 100% Pinot Noir. We should probably ask the winemaker. Um, but we think that it is, especially from where it is from, um, in Monterey, well, I think maybe Sea Glass makes makes two rosés because I think I, I used to buy this when I ran retail and and it was uh, I think they made a, a rosé of Pinot Noir and then they made one that was like Pinot Noir plus maybe some like uh, Grenache maybe I don't remember yeah. specifically but I think it's I think it definitely has Pinot Noir in it but I'm not sure it's a hundred percent. Yeah, so I mean, that's a good one to try. I mean, there's a bunch. I mean, Long Meadow Ranch that was another great one as well. Yeah, and that's twenty five bucks as well. So I guess for like five dollars extra. There's a wide range. What's cool about this is a wide range of price within the Pinot Noir spectrum here. Mm-hmm. You know, from eleven dollars to all the way up, and it's uh, there's something there's something that was. Di- I mean, there was something that kind of just like popped off in my brain during this tasting about Pinot Noir Rosé. There's this, there's this, there's this uh, distinct tart, juicy ripeness to it that doesn't have the sort of lean concentration of other varieties. There's sort of a playfulness to Pinot Noir Rosé that you don't really get. Pinot Noir Rosé just kind of, it just, it's kind of just like, it talks to you. It's like, yo, what's up? This is, I'm, I'm, this is going to be fun. Like, I know it will. That's what I don't like about it. <laughs> really? I mean, the, the sort of bright fruitiness has never been a big 
never been a big appeal for me but but that's just me you know i i I think there are certainly great examples i actually uh one of the ones on the list that is pinot noir based the grand moraine is actually a rose a pinot noir rose that i do really like i I really like the wines from grand moraine in general yeah let's talk a little bit about about a a broader question so you know obviously as adam mentioned earlier you know we're in this sort of period of we all know in this period of quarantine and um and we are all kind of trying to uh, understand what that's doing to the industry. That's obviously why we've been doing all these COVID nineteen conversations, and it's been a focus of this podcast. So, so Erica, like, what is happening with rosé this year? You know, where is consumer interest in demand? Yeah, we're seeing a ton of demand. So, rosé overall is a juggernaut. And if we look at VinePair's internal data, which looks at consumer sentiment and purchase intent, rosé is off to an earlier start than usual this year. So in March, we saw a 19% increase in reader interest compared to the same month last year. And sales also hold up to this story that we're we're thinking about. So rosé is the bright spot across the country in the wine space, according to Nielsen data, off-premise. So where we typically see uh, the strongest sales for rosé in summer months, the category was already spiking in February, rising 13% in the last 52-week total. Uh, so, so that was $583 million in sales for the last running 52 weeks, which is the highest it's ever been. And it's the strongest growth we're seeing for any table wine. Uh, And one thing that I think that's interesting is that consumers are willing to pay more for rosé, according to this data, than reds or whites, an average of $2 more per bottle for rosé. So the national averages are $9.89 a bottle for rosé as compared to $7.63 for table wines as a whole. I thought that was fascinating. That is actually super fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. And and that data, it comes off the back of four years of solid growth. So also looking at Nielsen, off-premise sales of pink wine increased almost 300% between January 2016 and January 2020. So overall, it's a juggernaut category. It just keeps growing, not slowing. If anything, it's accelerating and it's finding appeal across all seasons of the year. That's exciting. I think uh, all of us who love wine are, are happy for any good news uh, in terms of uh, demand and all that. Adam, I'm curious though, because you know a, a piece of this too is, you know, are we concerned with some of these European rosés as far as like the impact that tariffs might be having on on pricing? So, I mean, that's definitely been brought up. I've talked to some importers, distributors, uh, and winemakers who've said that, you know, the tariffs are still obviously an issue and they're hopeful that the tariffs could be removed, especially given what's happening now with uh, COVID-19. But, you know, I don't think the consumer is going to see the tariff. Unfortunately, what's going to happen is that the um, the distributor, the importer are going to keep eating it. A few big uh, importers that I spoke with last week told me they're just eating the tariff, um, especially when it comes to rosé, because there's, there is, as Erica is saying, such a demand for it that like they don't want to do anything right now in these uncertain times when these are sales that are booming to, you know, put a a break in front of it, you know, and, and have, you know, a consumer trip up and say, wait, so I used to pay 15 bucks for this wine and now this wine's, you know, 20 bucks. Nah. So they're just eating the tariff. Um, so it, it sucks for a lot of businesses that are still struggling right now, but I think that that's, they've determined that that's the only thing to do. And Erica, is there any risk about not having enough supply, especially with, with Rosé coming in overseas? I know, you know, to some extent, I'm wondering if there are, if you're aware of any challenges like with shipping and, and all that just because of, you know, the, the lockdowns and whatnot. 
I think there may be a little bit of challenge, uh, especially if there were wines that were not already on boats when lockdowns went into effect, depending on what country they were coming from, there may be some delays. But what we're hearing from importers and from producers is that if there's the demand, we will fill that supply. So they're saying they'll do what it takes to make the wines available. And there's also a lot of wines on this list that are domestic. So uh, there's not those same logistics logistical issues of um, shipping overseas, but there may be some issues um, shipping, you know, across country. But I, I don't foresee that being a problem necessarily, because there's just such a huge range of rosés that are out on the market right now. Cool. All right. So so last kind of talking point here for us, I think, on this list in, is that obviously this is going to be the weirdest rosé season that any of us <laughs> have ever experienced. Totally. So I was kind of hoping that each of you guys could share share a, a tip or a thought about, you know, since some of our, our standards for how to go enjoy and experience and explore Rosé are not going to work, you know, maybe maybe later in this year there will be patios and we'll be able to go enjoy Rosé. Hopefully, certainly, you know, before too long, we'll be able to do the show with, with friends and family, at least in a controlled fashion, but but it's going to be different. So so Tim, first, let's start with you and in, in your uh, in your tiny apartment. How are, how are you going to experience uh, Rosé season this year? And do you have any tips for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I guess one, one tip I would have that's not really exactly COVID related, but something that I came across tasting the rosés for this year's list is that like not all rosé is created equal in terms of, you know, its profile. So I think there are bottles on there that definitely lean more towards like white wines in style and the way you should drink them. And there are wines in there that you should maybe consider a bit more like a red wine. And I think Keith mentioned that earlier. Um, So one example of that, the number four wine on the list uh, Copain, uh, I'm going to butcher this again, Le Voisin. Maybe that's wrong. Terrible French people come at me. <laughs> um, but that is a rosé that I found to drink like a red. So I definitely would say don't chill some of them down too much. Again, you need to taste the wine first so that you can get some kind of sense, but the tasting notes are in the article as well. This is a wine that I would drink slightly warmer than a normal rosé, and I might even decant, and I would also drink it with something, you know, I might even have steak with this, or I would have red meat, I might slice it quite thinly, um, but I, I, it has the structure there to hold up to something like a red wine, as opposed to many other bottles that might be more like whites. So I would say like, yeah, not all rosé is created equal. Keith, how about you? Do you have a, a tip for the listeners? I'm always the kind of person just like, you know, drink what you want, check it out, get into it, don't get into it. And rosé is the best way to just kind of order a bunch and just see what you like. And that's what I, what I, I think what I would take away from this is there's a lot, there's a good amount of wine on this list that are, that, that is affordable. And I think that because affordable rosé can be good and you can start with our list is that you can actually order multiple rosés and see what you like. And also don't be scared of the screw cap. Always make, you know, it's not... A screw cap does not define the quality of a wine. Cool. Adam, how about you? You got a, you got a tip? Yeah. So I would say like, you know, first of all, I mean, figure out how you can uh, drink outside in however way that you can. And also just <laughs> don't forget that the reason this category has exploded is because it's the, the first category in a really long time that consumers didn't feel was pretentious and felt like it was fun, right? Because of all the things Keith and Tim were saying, it's, it feels accessible. It feels at a price point that feels premium, but yet not too premium. 
there's not a lot of talk about lay this down for 10 years and then maybe you'll understand it, right? It's like, this is delicious <laughs> right now. Um, and so just remember that when you go out to drink rosé, like the producers have fun making these wines. You're supposed to have fun drinking these wines. These aren't supposed to be wines that you get all like uppity about. Um, don't let people talk down to you about rosé. Like if they do, they can go fuck themselves, to be honest. Like it's it's not worth it. Like it is a fun category for a reason. So find what you like and then don't feel bad about liking what you like. Fun but serious. Exactly. And, and Erica, how about you? I'm along those same lines. I went into this tasting feeling that I probably would not like anything that was under $25 just from where I've been drinking wine out at restaurants. And uh, and I hadn't ever done a really huge tasting across all the rosé categories. So when I was thinking of rosés, was, it was always what you would find at restaurants, Whispering Angel or Miraval or what have you. And those tend to be the more expensive rosés. What I was completely shocked about is that of our 25 list, 10 of them came in at under $15. And most of my favorite bottles were in that group. And that was a huge revelation to me. So I totally echo what everyone is saying, what Keith is saying, particularly around take some chances and try some different bottles and see what you like, because I think you'll be surprised at the amount of high quality wines that you'll find at lower price points. Yeah. And I want to, I want to pick up on one other thing that Keith was saying, I think is really important to remember, which is color. So you hear a lot of people talk about how they don't think rosé is quality unless it's like that salmon color. I know we've talked about this before, but like, just think about this as a, as a listener. So if the winemaker knows that all you care about is that salmon color and they think that that's why you're going to buy the rosé, then they may, they may take a lot of other, they might cut a lot of other corners or they may, you know, not ensure that the rosé is as delicious as it could be just to ensure that salmon color right? Because that's what's going to cause you to buy it. And so you may be sacrificing a lot of flavor and deliciousness because all the winemaker was trying to do is being told by the, you know, by themselves as the owner or the owner that they're working for hit that salmon color. So someone buys the wine. And so like, yeah, like take, take the chances. You'll see the majority of our wines are not that salmon color. Uh, there are some obviously, but a lot of them go lean darker because they're just delicious. And so don't get caught up on it having to be that pale, pale, pale pink because you're missing out on a lot of really amazing rosé that way. I'm going to offer my own little tip here before we wrap things up. And that is, well, I think it's certainly true that one of the great things about rosé is that it can be fun. It can be playful. It can be kind of whatever you want it to be. It doesn't require necessarily taking it all that seriously. It also can be taken seriously. And, you know, as uh, Tim was mentioning and Erica and, and kind of everyone has touched on at one point or another, there are some serious wines on this list. And and if you want to think about them, you want to come back to them a day later when they've had a chance to evolve a little bit. I, I think there's a lot of rosé out there these days that, that will really reward you for taking it a bit more seriously. And since we can't just kind of chug it on a patio these days, why not take the opportunity to take this uh, rosé season as a chance to to discover a little more and, and dig a little deeper if that is what's interesting to you. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, guys, thank you so much to Keith and Tim for joining us on this Rosé-tastic podcast. And Zach and Erica, as always, it's a pleasure to all those that listen. We really appreciate it. Um, please read the list. Give us your thoughts. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. Also, standing off for some of you reached out. If you got wine, you want to send it to any of us, just hit us. You got beer, you want to send any of us, just hit us. Spirits, you want to send any of us, just hit us. We could use it. Um, podcast at vinepair.com. And then 
again, if you're enjoying what you're listening to and appreciating the work we're putting into putting out all this content throughout the COVID-19 crisis, please leave us a review. Tell your friends. Like us on uh, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. All those reviews and ratings really help people discover the show. And we'll see you next week. Sounds great. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.